Christmas podcast, listeners, and welcome to Two Bald Men and Friend, the show where we talk about issues and ideas using pop culture as the springboard. I'm your host, Joe, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Alex. Happy holidays. And today we are joined by our friend, Geraldine. Hi. Today we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life and all the lessons it has to teach us. So spoiler alert for It's a Wonderful Life. Sit back, relax. Or, if you're driving, please sit upright and continue to drive vigilantly. So, G, do you think that you could give us a um, summary of It's a Wonderful Life? Sure thing. Uh, so, the movie begins with two angels reviewing the life of a man who is contemplating suicide. In order to earn his wings, the main angel, Clarence, must save George Bailey by helping him learn the positive influence his life has on others. And the story travels through George Bailey's past, present, and possibility of him not existing. Um, so you mentioned the opening with the two angels. Um, I think this movie's, like, so ingrained in our culture, like, everyone kind of knows what it's about. But when it started, it's like a bunch of solar systems lighting up as they talk. Right. So I put it on, that happens, and like I kind of like sat up and was like, is this the right movie? <laughs> Did I put that on right? <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Like, It's a Wonderful Life is well known to be like that Christmas movie that everyone's going to watch. But I don't know how many of us have actually sat down to watch it, at least all the way through. I didn't remember that it was 130 minutes long, <laughs> and I, I was definitely fighting through like some uh, sleep deprivation <laughs> just to finish the movie, but that may have just been my fault. <clears throat> I think it's like when you hear a song playing in the background over and over, and then one day you finally realize the meaning of the lyrics, and you're like, oh my god, this was a good track, why do I always skip it? It's kind of like that. Oh, see, for me, it was always like, oh my god, I was singing about sex as an elementary school student. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's how I always find out. <laughs> That's what the song Side to Side is about. <laughs> I distinctly remember in elementary school going, give it to me, baby. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> and then, like, in high school being like, oh. <laughs> uh, oh, no. <laughs> Oh no, Clarence! <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I, like you said, I think this is just the movie where it's like, yeah, it's that Christmas movie where the guy wants to never be born and then he gets his wish granted and sees what the world would be like. So it's like, I, I've seen that movie. Like, I don't need to watch it. Yeah, but, and I think it gets parodied or copied mm -hmm. uh, multiple times. So, like, a lot of people get a sense of, oh, I know what it's about mm -hmm. and then assume they've seen it. But... The part that people always think about is in the last 20 minutes yeah. of a 130-minute movie. <laughs> Which I did not know. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of backstory seeing George's life. And like an hour in, I texted the two of you and was like, there's a lot going on. <laughs> like, I don't really know what's happening. <laughs> When's he going to try to jump yeah. off the bridge? <laughs> I think that's part of the point of the story is that you mattering takes up more space than you not mattering. Ah, that's an interesting point. Mm -hmm. Like, even though you watch George's life and you're like, do we really need to see all of this? Yeah. But it's like, all of it's important because right. you're important. Mm -hmm. And all the details do come back in at the last 20 minutes. Like, there's, I mean, you could argue there's some parts that don't need to be in the beginning, but everything comes full circle. Right. And you and realize how much of a domino effect he has on everyone. Yeah. Yeah, so overall, if I was going to have to rate this movie, I uh, it's not my cup of tea. 
Um, and it's not the movie's fault. I definitely think it's my fault and my brain needs more stimulation. It's slow in my eyes. There's a lot of scenes that take a really long time. Um, a lot of the movie is like single takes and you sort of see it kind of lull through the scene. Um, but I think some of the messages are good. I think it's a little bit overrated though. So if I was going to rate it, it'd probably be about a C. And that's giving it the benefit of the, of the doubt that it's not my cup of tea. Yeah, giving, I'd probably do a B minus taking into account it's not my cup of tea. Um, this movie was made in 1946 before they knew how to make movies. Um, <laughs> so um, it's kind of shot like a play. And I think that's why we get those long shots of people just talking and it takes its time. And uh, the war was over and people needed shit to do to fill their time. So mm -hmm. uh, you get these long movies, but um, in the end, I do think there is a lot of payoff for as much as it puts in in the beginning. And it is kind of a staple in pop culture, and I think I have to give some extra credit for that. So I'd, I'd probably go like B, B minus. I think I'm an easy audience, but I also am a person, this is definitely my cup of tea, uh, where I need something hopeful, positive, bordering on corny in my life, or else I become hopeless. So I need this kind of thing, so that's why I gravitate towards it. But I can definitely see why it's slow for people and it doesn't resonate as much. Yeah, I definitely understand that point. There are times in my life where I need hope, and mm -hmm. so I'd be willing to uh, consume certain types of media that might be a little idealistic just so that I have like something to achieve. And then other times I might be more cynical and might say, well, this movie's dumb because it's too hopeful. Mm -hmm. So it definitely also depends on my mood. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, I think we might have mentioned this quote on the podcast before, but it's something along the lines of, um, art doesn't make you cry or it doesn't make you feel it lets you feel so a movie like this lets you feel sentimental and good and hopeful um, I think the biggest thing for me was going into it I had this preconceived idea of what it's a wonderful life is and so like we mentioned before like everyone knows what this movie's about so I think that's why I was kind of like a little bit more tepid is that the word is that the word? <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for, you son of a bitch? Ow. <laughs> that is, of course, the scene where <laughs> George uh, accosts his uncle. Um, do you guys want to talk about, like, specific scenes and, like, things we can pull out of them? Yeah, I think so. Was that for the podcast or was that for us? It could be both. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I think there are a lot of scenes that stand out to me as I like them and they're hopeful. And then there are also other scenes where I'm like, oh, this is, this is bumming me out. Yeah. Like which ones? Like every time Uncle Billy is on screen and he does something <laughs> oh, stupid. Yeah. And I'm like, why are they giving this guy so much responsibility? <laughs> a lot of my research for It's a Wonderful Life came about when I just started looking up how much money he lost the bank. 
So he lost $8,000 and I looked it up and it said like somewhere between $115,000 to like $130,000. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you just walked around with that money? Right. And that's a small building and loan office. So that is huge to them. That's the entire existence for them. Right. And it's it's a very necessary scene in order for George to like hit that rock bottom. Exactly. And it just seemed, uh, I was just frustrated because I am not the biggest fan of like the, the comedy of error type of situations where the only reason things are happening to the main character is because of random happenstance. But that's just me. Yeah, um, the Uncle Billy stuff, the banking stuff in particular, kind of threw me. Uh, there were a lot of scenes where I was just like, okay, I get he works at a bank and... <laughs> I can tell that something's wrong, but that then you lost me. Like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, and it definitely helps to know that this is uh, the some sort of depression of some sort. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> let me, let me uh, Chime break in that down for you a little bit. <laughs> so I conferred with Aaron, who has been on a few episodes before, who taught money and banking. So I got this direct from the horse's mouth. But so this is supposed to signify the crash of 29 when there were bank runs. So basically, let's say there are 100 people who belong to this bank and they each deposit $100. So the bank technically has $10,000 in cash. But now the scene where George is like, but your money's not here, it's in Bob's house and Jim's house. So let's say back to the 100 people, if one borrower needs $9,000 for their home, then technically the bank has the 9000 that will earn interest in the long run and 1000 in liquid cash in the vault. So the problem with a bank is when people are scared and they go that scene where they're all trying to collect their money, the people at the front of the line are in the best seat because they're going to get their money back, but everyone else is screwed. And at that time, they didn't have regulations to where your deposits were insured. So that's where the FDIC came into play with, when uh, FDR made that, like, uh, administrative office exactly I guess. so then so before that time you were just essentially screwed if you didn't get to the bank run in time because there was no insurance that you could be saving your entire life and then it's all gone in a second so that's why the great depression was so horrible was because that was exactly what was happening to people and that's why george took his two thousand dollars um, and was able to keep the bank afloat because a bank run is basically a death sentence for a bank. Okay. Yeah, so that basically banks used to all be Ponzi schemes. It was this sense of, let me take a bunch of money and I'll say that your money is growing interest, but really any money that I'm giving you is from other investors putting in money. And you just sort of cycle through that money over and over again. An official bank actually does accrue interest. A, a Ponzi scheme is very strictly, it's not actually getting invested anywhere. Um, but because of that lack of regulation, those small banking, uh, those small banks could kind of do whatever they wanted and it all depended on whether the banker was an honest man or uh, what's the opposite of an honest man? A, a dishonest, dishonest woman. A potter. <laughs> a dishonest woman. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> but I completely uh, agree that there's a lot of banking terminology and a lot of banking conflict that isn't 
too clearly explained. It's kind of under it's kind of understood that the audience it was for knew what he was talking about because they all just lived through it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um and so in today's generation it's like eh. It still does play a role because it sends the overarching theme that American families' financial fates are intertwined, which is exactly what happened in the recession in 2008. Everything is a domino effect. Even on a global scale, as we're seeing now with Brexit and the European issues that are happening, that's going to have long-term effects financially and politically. Right. And it definitely reminds me a lot of The Big Short, where in the movie, Mm -hmm. they have a sides where, like, Margot Robbie is like, let me explain this simply for you. And, like, they take the time to explain it because they know that a, a regular audience member doesn't know a lot about that background, thi- like, the background government and banking system that controls everyone's life. And it's a little intimidating and scary to think that, like, so much goes on that we know so little about that when one thing goes wrong, everyone's life turns to shit. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to vote in your local elections. <laughs> but it's also important <laughs> to uh, research what you're going to be voting on. Correct. <laughs> Happy voting day, America! <laughs> um, not to be a huge downer, uh, let's talk about how hopeful this movie is. Um, so George falls down on a lot of hard times, um, but these angels notice that he's going to commit suicide, and so they send down Clarence to help save him. I think Clarence was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> um, the, there's one line in particular after they leave the bar, and he's like kind of he's clearly talking to like his quote unquote boss, but you can't hear anything the boss is saying. So he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're doing it." No, I didn't have a drink, and I was like, "This guy's delightful." <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that It's a Wonderful Life has great lines and it has great messages, but the the type of comedy that existed in 1946 isn't necessarily the the type of comedy that's going to keep me engaged. Yeah. Like, you're 18 years old now, but last year you were only 17. (laughs) Was that supposed to be comedic? I think so. I didn't. Get that. I think that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the problem. Yeah. Which also happens again with like Shakespeare and the comedy of errors. Mm-hmm. I read through that whole thing. I did not laugh once. Yeah. <laughs> when I watched it though, I still didn't laugh. But it's the comedy <laughs> of errors. Okay. So I personally, I have uh, always been a person who relied on their friends and made my friends part of my family. I mean, I moved. 3,000 miles from home. It was sink or swim, so I made friends. and be- You used us. No. <laughs> so I considered them to be the people I trust and my family. So I really resonate with the message because when I'm down on myself and I think I'm not going anywhere, I have to remember that my equity lies within my relationships that I've cultivated and that if I fall, somebody will have my back. And I, I, that's again why I need that hopeful message to keep moving forward or else then I'll, it's a slippery slope for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to say the movie is a little like, not unclear of what the message is, but there's like some arguments that could be made of like, is this really that good of a message? But then Harry and Clarence have um, the lines that really put a bow on it. Um, Christmas joke. (laughs) Um, so Harry makes a toast 
um, that says to George, the richest man in town, because everyone's from town has said, well, George has helped me in the past, so I'm going to come and help him uh, because Uncle Billy lost a ludicrous amount of money. Um, and then Clarence leaves a note that says, no man is a failure who has friends. So those, I think, are what the movie was aiming for. And to an extent, I think it gets there. And for a lot of the movie, George is just a well, if you want to call him a hero or a martyr, and he doesn't ask anyone for help. And I also think that's a slight message is that it's okay to ask for help sometimes mm -hmm. because your answer is already no if you don't ask, so you might as well. And then people, if you're, you know, a good moral person, you're likely to get help back. Right. But don't I be think, afraid to be vulnerable I to that. I think Michael Scott said it. He said <laughs> you, you miss all the shots that you don't shoot. George Gretzky? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. <laughs> Wayne, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> George Bailey? May Wayne Gretzky <laughs> dash Michael Scott. <laughs> so Michael Scott said it. Exactly. <laughs> Man, I'm really glad I got that quote right, you guys. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> no, George Gretzky. <laughs> um, but I definitely uh, agree with the sentiment that G Unit's talking about of this equity within relationships because... Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that I feel really close to in terms of like charities are homelessness and especially in regard to veterans. Um, and a big part of that is recognizing that really the only way for someone to become homeless is if they have no one, they have mm -hmm. no safety net. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people blame the homeless, uh, for being homeless because they don't have that empathy or they lack that understanding of, well, they don't have like a grandpa to like to like go and be taken care of and until they get back on their feet or they don't have that safety net of all of these relationships. And that happens so often with veterans because they're at war and they lose a lot of relationships while they're away. And when they come back, they don't know how to cultivate them again. They're, they are experiencing forms of trauma that prevents them from like getting to the state of mind where they can live a regular life again, lose a lot of money, and now they have nobody. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that, listeners. That got, <laughs> no, okay. I think it's important because I do forget that it's because of the loss of relationships that they sometimes can't even help. Yeah. And I think um, what you just mentioned is another lesson um, that this movie brings up that I think G brought up a little bit before of this domino effect. So you mentioned, um, you know, a, a veteran went off to war, loses contact, comes back, has no one, falls on hard time, and then is homeless. Like, nothing just happens in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And I really like that message in the movie. Um, one of the things George learns is that because he wasn't around to save his little brother, his little brother wasn't in the war where he saved, like, this boat of other soldiers um and so all of them lost their lives too just because george wasn't around when he was a little kid so i, I think this domino effect um is really something that we need to uh consider like in our daily lives mm -hmm. and you just you need to take and pun intended you need to take stock of your life every once in a while uh -huh. because you're you you matter like that at the end of the day yeah and everyone around you matters in mm -hmm. that same sense so it's not like i personally could oh it, it would be almost impossible 
for me to become homeless. I have uh, my mom, I have my dad, I have aunts, I have uncles, I have brothers, I have friends. Like there are so many people who would like house me at least for a little while until I get back on my feet for whatever reason I became homeless. And it's virtually impossible for that to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm so grateful for that and what I've experienced and what I have. And at the same time, use that empathy to go and help the people who don't have it. Right. Mm-hmm. So thanks, George. You, no, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, George. <laughs> um, one interesting lesson that Alex brought up is bad guys don't always get punished. And so I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, within the movie, you notice that Potter kind of gets away with everything. He is a slumlord, basically, and he accidentally finds $8,000 and keeps it. Like, yeah, it might not necessarily be his fault that it was in his hands, but he definitely committed a crime by not returning it. Um, and there aren't really any consequences for him in the present, and there aren't any consequences for him in the alternate universe either. And George even, like, runs by him and says, Merry Christmas, Potter. Um, and... Merry Christmas, Potter! (laughs) Thank you, that's what I was looking for. (laughs) And then Potter's like, get home, like, the cops are waiting for you. (laughs) And... There's just yeah. like yeah. It, it takes a puff of a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. There's a there was a lot of criticism for the movie saying it was too idealistic. Like, what are the odds that so many people would actually be willing to help George and not really recognizing again the importance of those relationships? But when you look at all of the things that happen to George as a good person mm-hmm. and all of the things that don't happen to Potter as a bad person mm-hmm. how idealistic is this yeah. movie and i think that's why even though it was criticized for being corny it's not that corny right because if it were potter would have been like the grinch and been like oh actually here's your money back yeah exactly you know? yeah i think the grinch is much more idealistic yeah and like overall it's realistic in that sense that bad guys don't always get punished right um when we talk about the recession of 08, all of those banks that were doing things that they knew was going to hurt a lot of people, all of them... They got bailed out. Got bailed out. The yeah. banks can't fail because yeah. they're not supposed to. Right. <laughs> so, Even with the current administration, it is clearly malicious and... You think so? What? <laughs> and what's happening? <laughs> You know, it's... Oh, but Geraldine, it's Christmas. <laughs> Cut him some slack. <laughs> yeah, the war no. on Christmas. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, it's the holiday season. Excuse me. Let me bring that up. I hate the quote, we don't say happy holidays in this house. <laughs> we say Merry Christmas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could get visual. Just I, can, I can understand, like, wanting to get to say Merry Christmas. And you can say Merry Christmas, but you don't have to stop other people from (laughs) saying Happy Holidays. I don't get how that's an attack on you. Happy Holidays, movie house! (laughs) And um, I love, there's like a bumper sticker and there's like magnets that are like, put the Christ back in Christmas. (laughs) And when I initially hear it, I'm like, oh my God, get out of here. Like, shut up. But... If we really listen to that message, you're doing it all wrong. Because we should put 
Christ, you know, the man who forgave, you know, this guy who was <laughs> tolerant of who all. was tolerant of all and who sacrificed himself for sinners should be put back in Christmas <laughs> so that you can be more tolerant of people. Yeah. Yeah, they always seem to forget that part. It's <laughs> weird. Um but speaking of the current administration and Potter, um I enjoyed the alternate universe scene where George is running through the town now called Pottersville because Potter like owns the town because he's like this slumlord that like bought up everything. And it's basically the alternate future from Back to the Future 2 where everything's a casino and a strip (laughs) club and it's like, wow. So it's like even back in the 40s, they were like, hey, this Donald Trump's a bad guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when I did watch the movie... I definitely did get this uncomfortable sense of, wow, George Bailey is a martyr. And I know you mentioned this, Gina, like you can look at it from multiple perspectives. But it definitely brought me down in that he had a dream to get out of this small town and not a single person supported him. And they all kind of held him back in a sense. Like obviously he made his choices and so he's accountable for, for a lot of it. But... His father was like, no, you're taking over my business. His childhood um, crush was like, no, I want to marry you. And so, like, he couldn't get away and accomplish anything that he wanted to. And he had to sacrifice and sacrifice and compromise and compromise. And because he never asked for help and because he never shared what his dreams were, he got depressed mm-hmm. um, or he, he was depressed and eventually wanted to commit suicide. And... I'm so worried that the message is let's step on all these George Baileys because they're going to be there to martyr themselves so that I can keep leeching off of them. Yeah, I think a criticism of the movie is basically like, yeah, you know, some people get to be Harry's and like go off and become a war hero. And some people are George's and like, yeah, you're going to have friends that'll come support you. But, um... You know, you're kind of around so everyone else's life doesn't suck. <laughs> but to defend Mary a little bit, she was a ride or die. She was going mm-hmm. to go on a trip with him. And she was like, I'll go anywhere. Who cares? It just is unfortunate that the bank run happened that day. And even his dad, he asked him, you know, can you take over the banking and loan office? And then George said, no, dad, like, if I don't leave, I'll bust. And then his dad said, I understand. I mean... His dad, unfortunately, passed away the same night, but that's not his dad's fault. You know, I'm starting to think that his dad had a little uh, alternate uh, motivation so I, so I think when he died. I think it's cultivate the, those relationships as you're... I'm just repeating what you're saying, basically. Cultivate those relationships, convey your dreams, and ask people for help. You can do a better compromise to achieve everything, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, and I think... Um, Alex, your point is like a very cynical way to look at this movie. Um, but you do bring up the idea of like, because George didn't talk about his dreams and because George didn't ask for help. So, um, he does ultimately make these choices and gee, like you said, like Mary, when the bank run happened was like, okay, like let's take the money, Mm -hmm. um, for our honeymoon and do this instead. Like she, he had people always very willing to help him even when they didn't ask for it and to defend george a little bit 
maybe the reason why he was compromising so much was because of the time it is World War II and people did have to just come together for the good of the country. Right. And, and you had to give up a lot. Completely recognize that and by the end of the movie now everyone's coming together. But for George's entire right. lifetime, yeah. he was the only one right. holding everyone together. <laughs> and that hurts. That Not because I've ever felt like George, but because that'd be, that'd be terrifying. <laughs> and I, that's, <laughs> I think that's an older child syndrome too. Like, that resonates hard with me. Yeah, the only reason George's dad asks him and not Harry is because George graduated high school before Harry yeah. did. He even said, well, you were born older. Yeah. Because that's how an older... I mean, you're the youngest. I guess so. I'll never relate to George. <laughs> yeah. I'm only defending him more than you guys are. <laughs> what can I say? I'm the youngest too. Go, Harry. So <laughs> Merry Christmas, Harry! Now, I am not a martyr, and I did flee my hometown. <laughs> And I did travel. Do I feel guilty? Yes. <laughs> That's a different story. <laughs> but I, I don't think that is a different story. I think there's a there's a dangerous, a potentially dangerous message here where, like, if you go follow your dreams, you're selfish. Mm -hmm. And I guess in a sense, yes, but you also need to take into account your mental health. Yeah. And I think this movie slightly addresses that in the fact that George doesn't have good mental health. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't address it in that bow tie sense of uh, the summary at the end of no man is poor who has friends. A failure. Oh, what the f <laughs> No man is a failure who has friends. And George is the richest man yeah. in town. Yeah, that's, that's Thanks, all right. you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Didn't mean to do that. But the message that I'm worried about is if you pursue your dreams, you are really self-centered. Um, if you abandon your family who's running a family business and they expect you to run it when they're gone, you are being selfish. And I think that's a very scary entrapment mentality that I've seen people experience. That You saying that alone puts so much relief on me. I've never heard that. And I'm like, okay, so I'm not the devil. <laughs> oh, you are, but for other reasons. <laughs> right, right, right. I think the message is more going for, and I obviously I know the inverse of what I'm about to say, but I think it's more so not um, if you do your own thing, you're selfish. I think it's more so um, try to be selfless. And, and George constantly put others in front of himself which like you said led to poor mental health mm -hmm. and i'm i'm almost positive whoever wrote and directed this movie in 1946 was not trying to make that message yeah. <laughs> but i think nowadays we can look at this and kind of be like okay yeah like you should always want to be selfless but like it's okay to every now and then be like no you know what i'm going to do this for myself because it's what i need to do and it's your life yeah right and I'm certain that overall It's a Wonderful Life has a positive message or at least was seeking a positive message. And for that intent, I applaud it. But I find flaws in it as I'm watching it. And it makes me, at the very least, it just made me uncomfortable. Not in a way where I couldn't enjoy the movie. But I was just like, uh-oh, be careful of the message. <laughs> I mean... Again, it's a little bit cynical. I personally need that positivity. And I think that this movie stands the test of time. One of you, I think it was Joe's... No, I think it was Alex who said it was one of the first movies before they learned how to make movies. 
Was that you? That was me. Sorry, Joe. That was Joe. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Joe! <laughs> and the fact that it can do so so early on and still have these overarching themes that are applicable in 2018, mm -hmm. I think that makes it a good movie. And you can take it for what it is. I think you also said that art makes you feel something. And mm -hmm. it made us feel a little bit differently. And I think mm -hmm. it's good. And again, I'll say it again. It makes you take stock of your own life. Right. And that's what's important because you need to reflect every once in a while, whether you're up or whether you're down. I agree. Yeah, I think I'm going to play devil's advocate just one more time. <laughs> it comes up a lot with time traveling movies or alternate universe movies. This idea of everything happens for a reason. And the main thing that George or one of the main domino effects was George saves Harry, and therefore when Harry goes off to war, he's able to stop a kamikaze plane and save a boatload of people. Um, and therefore, if George didn't exist, Harry wouldn't have had to do this, that, and the other thing. I think that that sentiment of everything happens for a reason is well-intended, but often falls short of the reality of every person's life. I think people use that phrase too often when someone gets diagnosed with an illness, when there's a tragedy in the family, when there's a natural disaster. People say things like everything happens for a reason and it sort of dismisses any accountability and it also dismisses any pain that anyone's going through. I agree with that, but um, I think in the context of this movie, this is the perfect time to use that phrase. Because rather than, um, oh, my mom is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Oh, everything happens for a reason. Now it's like, oh, so like you're saying this is a good thing that like my mom is passing mm -hmm. away. Whereas here it's saying like, George, I know you're having a tough time, but like you are so important. And everything that happened to you unfortunately happened for a reason. And it's sort of like a more retrospective look rather than forward-looking. I think that's the problem with that sentiment of it's like the reason this happened will be revealed to you mm -hmm. rather than well think about it this way if this didn't happen then this thing wouldn't have happened. I think that's the proper way to look at that kind of phrase. I can understand that and I do agree that I think goodness can come from suffering but that sentiment almost sounds like goodness comes because of suffering and yeah. i think just being able to differentiate between those two is really important i agree yeah no one says that when you won the lottery right a <laughs> hundred million dollars everything happens for a reason yeah. man you can finally pay for your house i think in times of distress or hardships when people say those phrases that are i think it's intended not to dismiss but to just have at least a flutter of hope because hope really does float I think again at least it does in my life so not to be egotistical but it's it's how I am able to carry on and everyone is not like me understand but if there is no hope then you're already where you're at and yeah. I think this movie is aptly named because it is a wonderful life it's not saying perfect life it's not saying everything happens for a reason life it's a wonderful life and there's a yin and a yang to it. And I'll definitely say when I started talking about It's a Wonderful Life, I expected this episode to be a lot more jolly. <laughs> so, my bad. <laughs> yeah, it is your bad. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, but 
even in your own life, you expect it to be rainbows and butterflies, and it's not always. But you have to realize it's wonderful. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Please tune in next time when we compare all movie versions of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. If you liked us, find us on Twitter and Instagram at 2 underscore bald men, and find us on Facebook. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you all so much again, and if you were driving, we hope you got to your destination safely and on time.